And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Wednesday, January 27th, 2021. I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you today, Pam? I'm very good. I'm looking out my window and looking at all the snow all around us. So it's it's the first time we've had a lot of snow, and it, now it feels like winter. We've kind of had two years in a row without too much, so uh, we've been very, very lucky as it relates to snow, not so lucky as it relates to this pandemic. So can you give us a, an update on uh, how the hospital's numbers are as it relates to the COVID uh, patients? Absolutely. I think um, it's a little bit better, I think. So last week we were at 42 positive patients with three on vents and two waiting results. And this week we're at 35 positive patients with two on vents and two waiting results. We did have uh, three additional deaths, so 155 last week, 158 this week. DuPage County went from 68,970 positive patients to 71,323 positive patients, and deaths went from 1,151 to 1,179. The state went from 1,070,000 positive patients to 1,100,000 positive patients, and deaths went from 20,119 to 20,853. And for the good news, we actually went from 1,311 discharges to 1,374 discharges in one week. So that's 63 discharges of COVID patients in this past week. And our recovery rate across the state remains at 97%. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, as more people get vaccinated, if if uh, the hospitalizations start to go down. I would certainly hope they will, but... Uh, I guess it's uh, to be seen for, you know, in terms of how long it will take for that to happen. So we've, we've talked the last few weeks about coronavirus variants that are out there that are widely reported in the news. And you had mentioned that in particular, you're not testing for what variant it is. So how do, how do we know as a society in our medical community that this variant exists if we're not testing for it, if that makes sense? So currently, the only way to know that the variant is there is to do the gene sequencing, and we don't do it. Um, most laboratories don't do the gene sequencing, but there are some labs in the state that do, and that's how we know that there it is here in the state. And I'm sure there are more people with that variant than we know. The interesting thing for people to know, though, is whatever variant you have of COVID, the testing we do shows that you have COVID. It just doesn't tell us which variant it is, but it does show positive for COVID no matter what variant it is. So would it make sense that probably if there are some tests that figure out what variant it is, you know, check out the genes that, um, you know, the, the state medical officer, so to speak, would extrapolate and try to figure out how many of those cases are in the state likely? Is that, do they, do they do that kind of projecting, do you think? I don't think they have enough data to do that. It's so few few labs doing it that it'll be hard to be able to do that. I know that uh, COVID patients currently can't have visitors at Elmhurst Hospital and probably at most, if not all, hospitals. 
Have have you treated other infectious diseases at the hospital over the years that are similar to this in terms of being so infectious that patients can't have visitors? Well, currently there are no other infectious diseases where we restrict visitors. Um, when we do have something that's highly infectious or, um, you know, that are very risky to people going in the room, we... Yeah, they are allowed to have visitors, but they have to wear a lot of personal protective equipment. And um, so we provide them with that personal protective equipment. The thing is, usually if we have some disease that would require that, there's not many patients with it at the time. And so it's easy to manage the visitors, get them the right equipment, have enough equipment, and, um, you know, and keep everybody safe. Right now, because there's so many people with the disease and it's so contagious that's the reason why visitors are not being allowed. Although we are in the process of trying to review that, and we are hoping sometime at the middle to the end of February, we will be allowing COVID patients to have one visitor for um, a couple hours a day. It, you know, and we just want to make sure that's usually how long a visitor can tolerate keeping as as much personal protective equipment on as we need them to keep on. And so, and be able to manage teaching people how to put it on and how to take it off safely so they don't infect themselves in the process of taking it off. And so we're, we're going to look at that and hopefully by mid-February we'll be able to do that. I've heard a lot of predictions from people in the media that believe we will be wearing masks for a long time to come, you know, well beyond the pandemic. And my question to you is, do you think that and when I say that, I don't mean everybody wearing masks, but a lot of society will. Do you think that within hospitals, uh, mask wearing may become more the norm long after this pandemic is in the rearview mirror? You know, I don't think we've gone there yet, although it would not surprise me. I do think, um, you know, infection control practices are going to end up changing post-pandemic because, it, you know, we now see how having masks has stopped us from having flu when we don't even have flu in the building right now. So I imagine we are, might be asking people who have any kind of cough or cold that while they're in the building, they wear a mask. Um, you know, I would think people might even decide to do that when they're not in the building and when they're out in public, if they have a cough or cold to be polite and wear a mask so that we don't spread disease. But it, it is interesting how um, we have been able to stop flu this year by not by wearing these masks. You bring up an interesting point. I've heard a lot about flu cases being down. Do you normally have a handful of flu patients in the middle of winter in the hospital? We normally have a lot of flu patients. Every other year we get many more flu patients than the year before, and usually it's a hit or miss on what variant of the vaccine was given because there's so many variations to flu, but we never go a year without flu patients. And this is probably the first year I've ever seen with no flu patients. That is very, very significant. I'm just shocked at that. Um, moving into the vaccine questions, does it appear that at this point, those employees at EE Health that want to be vaccinated right now have been vaccinated? Well, if they... If they want to be vaccinated, they still can. 
a lot of employees are still thinking about it, are still waiting to talk to their doctor. So we will continue to vaccinate, but we have moved up and we now have 63% of our uh, employees are vaccinated, which, you know, we would like it to be higher than that, but we're, we're glad that it went up and we're still spending time trying to educate to make sure that people get their vaccines. But you're, you're essentially finished vaccinating those that stepped up right away, correct? Correct. So there are a lot of uh, seniors that are in that group 1B, the 65 and older, that um, might not have access to your MyChart uh, communication system. So my question to you is, if they're not signed up for MyChart, are they kind of at the bottom of the list and the folks that are signed up for MyChart will be contacted first about the vaccine? No, we, we're risk stratifying all of our patients that are related to any of our physicians based on age and risk factors and not based on whether they have MyChart or not. Then we will look to see if they have my, my chart and notify them through my chart, or if they do not, we'll be making phone calls because we want them to get vaccinated whether they have my chart or not. Well, that's great to hear. So, uh, because I'm guessing there are a lot of elderly people that don't have access to a computer, um, maybe it's just not their thing or, or whatever. So uh, that's that's great news. And and as it relates to my chart, we've heard a lot about that lately. And it's a good thing to, you know, to be signed up on my chart so it's easy for your healthcare provider to contact you. Is that a product that's proprietary of EE Health or is it widely used in the industry? It's uh, widely used in the industry. It, you know, we all have to purchase it and, um, you know, we have our the way we set it up, but we all work where they talk to each other. And um, if you allow, let's say you have, a uh, doctor with us and you have my chart but you go to a doctor somewhere else and they have my chart there you can make sure that any records that are at the other location become part of your my chart here so it, it's nice um, you know there's just a few vendors out there that do electronic medical records and um, and the vendor that does my chart is a very large vendor that is well regarded throughout the uh, without throughout the country is there anything that folks that are in that group 1B should be doing from a proactive standpoint to make sure they're not missed? You know, if they have a, a doctor, let's say with EE Health, and they've, maybe they've signed up for MyChart, maybe they haven't, um, other than going on the county's website, is there anything that you would really suggest they do? Like, should they call their doctor? Should they not call their doctor? Um, you know, what's your best advice? Well, they, they can call their doctor, but I think, you know, the better thing is if they are on my chart, make sure you respond to any messages you get because that's going to help you. And it's and if you can sign up for my chart, scheduling will become much easier. And if you get a phone call, make sure you return the phone call or answer it. I know um, the risk stratification is working because I already got I notified by my chart account that I fell into the the high-risk group, and I should be getting my vaccine. Now I've already gotten my vaccine, so they obviously didn't look to see that I had my vaccine because they're just sending it out to who the highest-risk people are. So when you get your notification, whether by phone or by your, your MyChart account, please respond to that because that will make it much easier for you to get your scheduled. Have you done any sort of analysis in terms of the administration and the medical staff to kind of get an idea of, how many patients you may have in that group 1B and how long you think it'll take you to get 
enough vaccine and get those people in and out, so to speak, with at least the first dose? Is it does it seem like it's going to be months at this point? Well, uh, no, it won't be months, but it'll be several weeks. So we've figured out in our current risk stratification across the system that we have over 65 years old, 72,000 patients. So that's, um, that's a lot of patients that we're going to get vaccinated. Now, the good thing is we have opened two vaccine sites. I told you about Downers Grove. Downers Grove does about... They can do a capacity of 400 a day, but we're, we've got it divided into 200 for new vaccines and 200 for your second vaccine, so we can keep both going. And then we just opened today our Seven Bridges site, which is in Woodridge, um, off Hobson Road, just just uh, west of Route uh, 453, I-355 or Route 53. And it has, um, they started today, they've already done 132 vaccinations, and we can, between the two sites, we can get a capacity of 2,000 vaccinations done a day. So we're hoping to get through this, and we're, we're expecting it'll take several weeks to get through the 1B, but not months. And as a reminder for those who've listened in the past and, and uh, as information for those who haven't, the Downers Grove site is right off of Butterfield Road, just west of uh, 355 on the south side of the street. It's an old bank building that uh, is well-marked with Edward Elmhurst Health, as I recall, right? Correct. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I've seen reports that a lot of vaccines use polyethylene glycol, or PEG as it's known, um, to make them more soluble in water, and that I know some people have allergies to, to PEG. Um, is that something that, that uh, we should be afraid of? Uh, if we do, we even know if we have at those allergies, or do we find out after we get the shot, so to speak? So um, the only thing I can say is anybody who does have that allergy shouldn't should talk to their PCP before they get the vaccine. And I, I tried to research how many vaccines actually have it in there, and I didn't see many. So um, I do know that it is in this vaccine, but I'm not sure it's in all vaccines. So if somebody's getting chemotherapy or some other uh, serious treatment, maybe for cancer, should they still get vaccinated regardless of the fact that they're undergoing those other treatments? So they can get vaccinated, and there are specific guidelines for that, but they really should talk to their primary care physician first or their oncologist before they decide to get vaccinated. What they're going to do is weigh the risks of vaccination versus the risk of getting the disease and what it might do to them. And that's and that's a good discussion to have with your doctor before you do it. So, you know, one doctor might recommend one thing for one patient and another thing for another patient based on their current health status, correct? Correct. You know, it, 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 they just want to make sure that getting a vaccine, vaccine is not going to make it worse for you, but if you get the disease, is that going to be okay or not? So it, obviously, you know, talking to your doctor, everybody's different. They should talk to their doctor. And then whatever the doctor recommends and they decide they want to do it, then we're there to give them the vaccine. Have you heard any uh, recent stories of employees that had really severe side effects? Nope. Not, I haven't heard anything. That's great news. So a lot of the more um, mild side effects 
might be the type of things that we would take, you know, Tylenol or an anti-inflammatory for. So is it recommended that we might take that before we get our vaccination? So it is not recommended to take it ahead of time. And I'll tell you, I think primarily it's not recommended so that you see if you do have a reaction or not, because you don't even know if you're going to have a reaction. And I mean, like myself, I didn't have any reaction and didn't need anything for it. But some people did need something. So, and then we also want to see how many people have reactions. So um, we wouldn't know if you pre-medicate yourself. So it's, it's recommended that you wait and you treat the symptoms and then you can take Tylenol or ibuprofen, whatever you would like. I'm guessing that at the time you get your vaccination, there's some instruction from the, the folks that give you that, right, as to what you might consider doing if you do have those side effects? Absolutely. You get a whole sheet of information for you to read that will help you. So earlier today, I, I sent you a letter because I didn't want you to be hit with this question blindly, but it was a letter somebody sent to me from the Illinois Department of Human Services that they prepared for families of of uh, loved ones that have certain disabilities, including Down syndrome, epilepsy, and cerebral palsy, and that those folks might be considered healthcare workers if they were caring for their loved one in their home, and therefore may be considered a um, class 1A uh, in terms of the priority for the vaccination. Um, do you know anything about that and how those people might reach out to their health care provider so that they can get certified as 1A? Yes, right now um, this is a new process that just came out. So your letter was, was how we learned about it. And um, not from you, but from Illinois Department of Public Health. And so right now what we're doing is having our primary care physicians identify patients who fall into that category, having one of those diseases, and contacting them to find out who their health care worker is that's taking care of them, whether it's their family member, whether it's um, somebody else, and making sure that they get vaccinated. Uh, earlier today, changing gears a little bit, uh, we did a podcast with uh, – Dr. Mark Gomez, who is the gentleman who's now has the podcast Health 360 with Dr. G that EE Health uh, supports. And I want to tell you, we had a really good time with him today. Uh, that episode won't be published for a couple of days, but um, I'm really excited about that new podcast. And it's a great way for somebody in the medical community locally to get you know a message about how to take care of your health out to the to the general public in a, in a very fun, uplifting, easy to understand way. So uh, I don't know if you've listened to Dr. G's podcast, Pam, but I would highly recommend it. And, and what a great uh, interview he was today. I haven't listened to his podcast, but I've met with him and talked to him. And he is such a down-to-earth guy, easy to talk to, lots of energy, funny and, and I'm sure he is doing a fabulous job with the podcast because I know he wants to make sure people understand what's available in health and how to take care of themselves. And he's, he's a very giving man, so I'm glad you interviewed him. It'll be fun to listen to. He's, he's not just giving. He is interesting. He's talented. He, he has interests that are both what you would call cool and nerdy at the same time. And we really appreciated uh, him. And he was just so down to earth. It, he's a, he's a kind of person you want to say is your physician, frankly. Uh, so anyway, thank you for uh, 
you got me in touch with him, and I, I appreciate that. One last uh, question relates to volunteers. You have quite a few volunteers that work over at the hospital, and um, I'm not sure if you've been using as many volunteers as you were pre-pandemic, but um, I assume there's still quite a few working there. And my question is, were they eligible to be vaccinated, and um, were many of them vaccinated? So during the pandemic, we hardly used any volunteers, which was just very hard on us because they're so important to us and they do so much work. Um, you know, we wanted to keep them safe, so we made the decision not to have them come into the hospital. But after, you know, the last few months, we've started having them come back. We've been phasing them in and having them go to low-risk areas like um, our surgical area where we know everybody's been tested before they come in. Um and as we have moved forward, the volunteers, we consider part of our workforce. So we have been including getting them in the COVID vaccinations. And so we have encouraged them and we want them to receive it. And we are starting to try to phase back in our volunteers. We want them to feel comfortable, but we miss them terribly. And we can't wait till they come back. We also have not been bringing any new volunteers on because right now we just can't train people. We want to wait and get our old volunteers back and then we'll start that up again. Well, I'm glad they were uh, included in that group, The uh, at least the ones that are, are working right now. Uh, thank you so much as always for your time today. I look forward to talking again soon. And I think, I don't know if it's next week, We uh, you have a stand-in. Is that right? Uh, not next week. I will be here next week, the two weeks after that. I okay. We'll have uh, Dr. Michelle Mazir standing in for you, and she's the president of the uh, medical staff, correct? Absolutely, and she's also been in charge of getting all these vaccines out, so you can ask her anything you want to know about vaccines. That's great. Well, we look forward to talking to you again next week, and you have a great week. You too. Thank you. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.